Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. Today, Matthew McClintock joins us. Matthew's an attorney and is a principal at Evergreen Legacy Planning, which is based in Colorado. Matthew's built his practice at the cutting edge of cryptocurrency and estate planning. This is Matthew's second appearance on the show. We last recorded on October 2nd, 2020. Bitcoin was around $10,000 then, and it's now over $50,000. We're going to find out what, if anything, is different around legacy planning in the crypto world in this new environment. We're going to talk a little bit about estate planning in the white-hot NFT space, and we're also going to go into the details on how to properly staff the roles in crypto estate planning structures. Matthew's an amazing resource and is one of the top experts in the field of estate planning and digital assets. If you like what you hear, leave a review, and don't forget to check out Wealth Actually on Amazon. Welcome aboard, Matthew, or should I say welcome back. This is your second appearance on the show and thrilled to have you. The last time we spoke, I looked, was right around early October and Bitcoin was around $10,000. It's now around 44000 having taken a couple of trips north of that and south of that to get there. Let's talk a little bit about, and for listeners, before we get into some of this discussion, I'll put in the show notes our previous discussion around fiduciary issues around Bitcoin and some estate planning. But we're coming from an area where, say, mid to late 2020, and now we're sort of getting into the home stretch of 2021. What are you seeing for wealthy clients who have now had a little bit of volatility introduced into their Bitcoin planning. And what are you telling them as they come into your practice? You know, it's interesting because my client profile is a bit of a blend. I've got a number of clients who have been in the Bitcoin space and the broader crypto space for quite a while. And so the volatility does not come as any surprise to them at all. They've ridden the volatility waves. They've been through crypto winners. They've been through They've witnessed the death of Bitcoin many times over, but I've got an increasing number of clients who gained a significant level of wealth through conventional means, taking a company public or building a real estate portfolio or whatever. And they had started expressing interest in Bitcoin around the end of 2020, I guess, looking for some outsized returns in some of the more tax leveraged estate planning strategies we do for them. And so they saw the volatility, but for those clients, because they already had a lot of wealth and other assets, they were willing to accept and they are willing to accept a certain level of volatility, understanding that while they can, they can certainly cap their downside exposure, the upside possibility is is unbelievable. So the clients that I have that built their wealth through conventional means aren't necessarily going all in on Bitcoin or on crypto, but they're still interested in the asset class primarily because while it's volatile, they understand the historical performance year over year over year over year, usually with triple digit returns, they see that as as interesting. So they can Worst case scenario, they lose half their value in whatever entity it was that acquired the Bitcoin. But best case scenario, they go 3x, 5x or more. 
and they're, as you said, they have a longer time horizon for that particular asset because they've got substantial wealth elsewhere. And it also, I'm sure you have this conversation with them. It makes for a good intergenerational asset as well, because if you have that long time horizon and you're assigning that to that particular, whether it's Bitcoin or Ethereum or any of the other crypto assets out there, it's built to deal with that kind of volatility. A lot of the structures you're talking about. That's right. I mean, we've got working on a client right now who was a commodities trader, made a lot of wealth in Chicago trading commodities and went fairly heavily into Bitcoin back when it was about a hundred bucks. So they've been in it for a while and they see their Bitcoin holdings, which comprises about a third of their total net worth. So they got about 50 million in Bitcoin. They see that as their long-term multi-generational asset play. So one of the strategies that we're implementing for them around their Bitcoin is a conventional combined gift and sale transaction to an irrevocable grantor trust that is a generation skipping transfer tax exempt dynasty trust in a jurisdiction that has strong asset protection and a very long rule against perpetuities statute allowing the assets in the trust to remain in trust for a very long period of time. And if you look in the rearview mirror and see where Bitcoin has come from just in the last couple of years, and then maybe begin to extrapolate out what is possible for the next several hundred years of that Bitcoin. Now you're talking about taking a $50 million dynastic trust into a trust that could be truly billions upon billions of dollars in an estate and GST exempt trust framework for their families. Right. How do you staff this? So it takes a trustee that understands the fiduciary issues, understands general investment issues, sort of the nuances between intelligent diversification and letting an asset run. And then there's a technical expertise. I'm sure people have seen the headlines recently of the poly multi-blockchain theft that seems to be reversing itself as the thief is seems like he's a white hat person who is sort of showing different vulnerabilities in the system and as a peaceful <laughs> measure giving the money back. How do you find the right people to staff these things, whether they're trusts or LLCs or entities, so that you get that right mix of technical expertise, which is ever-changing, fiduciary expertise, which has a lot of tradition attached to it, but is also starting to change a lot, and then that investment expertise to help the client understand the context and with which they're, they're making this investment. What I've discovered is that it takes a fairly versatile approach for clients who have blended wealth, you know, some in the crypto space and some in conventional assets. We often will have a trustee who is dedicated to the conventional assets. Then we'll have a separate fiduciary who is dedicated to the digital assets, whether those are NFTs become really tricky, which maybe we can touch on here in a little bit, but just Bitcoin, Ether, more <laughs> conventional crypto, which almost seems like a contradiction in terms. But there is a growing body of dedicated fiduciaries who focus on managing digital assets like that. And so part of what we counsel clients through is not only from a legal strategy perspective, making sure that the right strategies are in place for both the quantitative outcomes that they're looking for, as well as the qualitative outcomes that they're looking for, but also 
helping them think through what assets should go into what type of framework and then what type of fiduciary is appropriate to manage that particular strategy. And so when we have clients who are diversifying out of crypto, maybe into real estate holdings or maybe into brokerage holdings or something else more conventional, we're often kind of sitting as a facilitator between different fiduciaries where we've got maybe a a crypto asset custodian who is sitting on their Bitcoin stack or their Ether stack. And then they've got their conventional trustee who is investing their, their fiat investments, their USD type assets. We're often kind of serving as a translator of sorts between those two fiduciary worlds. And I've told people I've run across this myself and my own sort of trust company world and then other people who call and ask around these things that it requires a lot of patience because as you said, you're doing a lot of translating between two different worlds. The word fiduciary means different things to different people. And in the crypto world, it almost doesn't mean anything at the moment, but it's starting to in a big way and that that definition is going to be multifaceted and interesting. So maybe take us through a little bit. We were talking before we started recording where folks who are bringing in wealth as part of a larger set of an asset allocation situation, maybe take us through a little bit of a discussion you have with someone who has made their wealth almost primarily in crypto assets and how you get them to, how you educate them around the broader legal fiduciary concepts, probably a little bit about diversification, although they're probably hearing that from other folks as well. But then also the thing that I've started to see a lot of is how do I educate my next generation around how this wealth has been created? The tricky part to me is that it has happened so fast. For some people, it hasn't involved a lot of skill. (laughs) And so then they're trying to figure out how to convey meaning, value, and discipline around wealth to the next generation. Maybe take us through some of those discussions. Sure. As to your first question about how you communicate with and explain to a crypto veteran of sorts, the importance of estate planning and really thinking through wealth transfer succession, it's challenging because, as you know, central to the the ethos is decentralization and disintermediation of financial relationships as among humans. And so... This idea, even what Satoshi had written in the white paper back in 2008, talks about peer-to-peer decentralized transfers for value. And so that in and of itself speaks that kind of ethos about becoming your own bank flies in the face of something as centralized and non-sovereign as having a trustee or having a fiduciary to whom you entrust your wealth during your life and the management of your wealth after you pass away. So one of the first conversations we have to have with clients is honestly just trying to be candid and say, look, we get it. We understand the ethos. We understand the self-sovereignty values behind this. But you also have to realize that with that self-sovereignty comes a high level of fragility in your wealth. And so the asset itself is highly resilient and anti-fragile. But when you hold your own keys and you are your own bank, if you don't have a thoroughly thought out succession protocol, then the wealth that you have accumulated in this space 
which becomes more expansive with every passing year, the wealth that you've accumulated could very well be be lost. And so that's simply a matter of the logistics of creating a succession protocol. The other side of that really gets into more traditional estate planning conversations around this asset class that you have built significant wealth in can be transformative when it changes hands into the next generation. Or it can be transformative even to your spouse or your partner once you pass away. First, we've got to deal with the logistics of making sure that somebody can actually manage that. But then how do we keep that wealth as it has grown from being unnecessarily eroded by tax? And how do we prevent beneficiaries from either being taken advantage of because now they've got all this wealth or making all kinds of terrible mistakes and blowing the wealth that you've built? And so those are conversations we have to have at any estate planning meeting. So we talk about stewardship. We talk about what their vision is for their wealth, recognizing that a lot of the priorities of estate planning kind of run headlong into this idea of self-sovereignty and disintermediation. When we're dealing with a lot of advanced estate planning strategies, those strategies necessarily require that the client no longer have sovereign control. As you know, a lot of your listeners know, there's this whole issue called dominion and control. And if you as the owner of an asset have dominion and control, then it will be subject to estate tax, transfer tax when you dispose of it or when you pass away. And so if we're going to do some sophisticated estate planning strategies, like funding a grantor retained annuity trust or some other sophisticated estate planning strategy with crypto, not only do we have to get the estate plan device itself right and make sure that that specific type of trust also thoroughly contemplates an investment thesis around crypto, empowerment around crypto, waivers of prudent investor rules and of diversification requirements and things like that, but also severing a client's or an individual's self-sovereign control so they can give their keys away without being overly vulnerable. We tell them that in order to get the outcomes that you say you want from a tax perspective and from a succession perspective, we have to really think through elaborate multi-signature controls. We have to identify multi-sig counterparties that have the client's best interests at heart and then work with the crypto asset custodian to design the multi-sigs where they can actually cascade through the generations. And so it takes a lot of time to explain that to clients and to explore that, educate them on that. But increasingly, we've seen that even people who have been in the crypto asset space for a long time, and, and even people who have a really deep-seated desire for that self-sovereign control, they find themselves on the banks of the Rubicon. They realize that there's tremendous vulnerability in remaining self-sovereign, although there's also tremendous freedom in that. But as they get older and as their stack gets more valuable, then they're increasingly concerned about transitioning that wealth into the next generation. And right now, there are some reliable ways to do that, but it requires a lot of, a lot of design and it requires them to actually have to give up 
some of their self-sovereignty. Yeah, it's a big leap of faith for them, especially when it's been drilled in over and over and over. Don't give your keys away. And you're asking them to do that because that that's what you need to do in order to effectuate a lot of these strategies. How many of your clients or how many people who walk through your door are still under the, I think, the illusion that crypto is the way to get off the grid? You know, there's no reporting to the government. You know, at some point, you know, paying for a pizza, you can do that, but you're not going to have to report that anywhere. You can literally get under the covers in the U.S. government or other governments are not going to be tracking you or anything like that. How much of that do you see? And is there a good success rate in telling them that, look, you know, the front page of your tax return says, did you engage in any cryptocurrencies? You have to check that box, yes or no. And you're either on the grid or you're off. And off the grid is often pretty expensive. <laughs> yeah. And if you try to be off the grid and somehow find yourself on the grid, <laughs> right. it could be even more expensive. <laughs> so I, I can tell you that the number of clients or even the number of contacts, prospective clients that come through with that perspective that you're talking about, Fraser, is now minuscule. It used to be significant. It kind of used to be that, hey, I want to be sneaky about this and would educate them, would say, well, we need to see completed tax returns. We want to make sure what you're reporting is consistent with what you're telling us. And clients who didn't want to do that did not become our clients. But now there's been enough, both from the 2019 and 2020 tax return questions, and as well as just the general heightened awareness of the crypto asset marketplace. People who come in my door are well plugged in to what's going on from a regulatory environment. They know the IRS is focusing very acutely on crypto asset tax reporting, underreporting, collections, all that kind of stuff. They know how that stuff works. And so they're not trying to hide anything. They just realize, hey, I've got a really valuable, highly complex asset class to which there are a lot of unknown unknowns. And so what can I do from a planning perspective to set myself up for success? And so we're fortunate enough to have built a network of CPAs, a growing body of financial advisors, a growing body of fiduciaries, and a growing body of our colleagues in the estate planning law industry who are increasingly savvy around crypto. And so I think as the as a professional services industry that you and I inhabit becomes increasingly comfortable with crypto assets, the more mainstream this all becomes and the more clients will just see this as, yeah, it's complicated. I know I can't hide. And so what can I do proactively from a fiduciary perspective, from a tax perspective, from a legal perspective, from an estate perspective to make sure that I'm intelligent and I'm efficient about this. Yeah, it's a cost of doing business, I think. And people are maturing in the industry and in the asset class and saying, this is just table stakes in order to behave correctly and enjoy what I built. (laughs) Yeah, I think your word maturing is right on. That's one of the comments that I make to other professionals that I speak with and to clients. I say, look, this is just the natural evolution of an asset class maturing. NFTs are another example. NFTs started out, my understanding is the earliest version was around 2018 with CryptoKitties. And I didn't get it then. I still kind of don't get that side of it. But as NFTs have continued to capture the public imagination, we're starting to see more conventional types of assets 
become tokenized as non-fungible tokens. And so now we have clients who, even clients of conventional wealth, are curious about digitally scarce and digitally unique assets to add to a portfolio. And that's just part of the evolutionary process. Yeah. So let's take the NFT discussion a little bit further. Non-fungible tokens. And I did a little analysis on this for a client. And in this particular case, he was interested in purchasing an NFT, which as I ended up understanding it was essentially a JPEG file that was housed at a company, lightly capitalized company, I might add, and that there was, I guess I would call it a certificate of authenticity that would reside on the blockchain and then did not include any ownership in the copyright of what was essentially a digital painting. And I looked at that and said, okay, you're going to own a file, you're going to own the unique file, and there might be some value to that that will be recognized universally as yours on the blockchain. And that that has value as well. But I was really concerned about not having an ownership in the actual copyright of the work and that by owning the NFT, by proxy, you're almost getting into the copyright prosecution business to make sure that the scarcity that you're buying is not co-opted in a different way by somebody else by publishing a, let's call it a reasonably good facsimile of that painting somewhere else and thereby making your scarce but not necessarily novel act or painting that much better. So that's one (laughs) sort of one manifestation of NFTs. What's come across your desk? Things like that. I'm sure music is part of it. And maybe before we get into that, how do you think about NFTs from a a definition standpoint? Well, just at its very fundamental level, we have to understand the difference between fungible and non-fungible. Most crypto assets are fungible. And what that means is that, for example, one three hundredth of a Bitcoin is the same as any other three hundredth of any other Bitcoin. There's nothing unique about that particular three hundredth of a Bitcoin. It's just they're interchangeable. It's like there's no difference between one $5 bill and another $5 bill. They're both worth $5. They're both freely exchangeable. There is no difference. They are fungible. What we always learned in law school is Things like grain and things like corn, that's fungible. A scoop of corn is a scoop of corn. It doesn't matter where it came from or who scooped it. Non-fungible tokens are tokens that are digitally unique. There is maybe only one of those in existence or only one of a series. Like maybe you have one of a thousand of specific tokens that were minted. There's just digital scarcity. It's finite and it is unique. So where I see this coming up is kind of three specific use cases that I've come across in my practice. One is kind of what you're describing, this some type of digital file, a digital image that like a cyberpunk or some crypto kitty type of thing that is digitally unique. Stoner Cats is another big one that's going on that Mia Kulis is putting together. Those are just digital collectibles. Often non-fungible tokens are kind of minted in a series. And so some are more scarce than others. Maybe there's one stoner cat that you could buy 500 of them. Maybe there's one that's only 25 of them. And so that kind of creates that scarcity and has a tendency to drive the market price. But those are simply collectibles, kind of bragging rights. And frankly, I don't really get it, but that's just me. The next item that I've come across in the non-fungible token space is conventional art that has been digitized and tokenized. 
and I've got a friend who has a a project. This friend is a very well-known sports photographer. He shot multiple copies of the swimsuit edition for Sports Illustrated. He's got a lot of photos of LeBron James. He's shot Bruce Springsteen concerts. And so he's a really prolific, well-known, and highly sought-after photographer. Well, that photographer has both conventional negatives and prints, and he has since transitioned over to digital photography. So he's got 30 years worth of content that he is now tokenizing. And so he's got a platform where if you want one of these really amazing photos of Michael Jordan dunking over somebody, great up close sweat dripping off the whole type of deal, you can mint that image and that is just yours. You now have ownership, not copyright, but you have ownership of that image that you can do whatever you want to with it. You can project it on a wall in your house. You can license it to others for royalty use. You can do a lot of things with those types of assets. And the third use case that I've come across, which frankly I find the most compelling use case, is in the gaming space. We've got a client who, in a large open source online game, has acquired over $4 million worth of non-fungible tokens. And these are pieces of terrain. These are monsters or characters that can be used in-game that he can use. He can upgrade them over time through use on that network. And he can either sell an upgraded NFT on the marketplace that is supported by this online game, or he can rent out those assets to other gamers in that space and earn a yield off of the other gamers' use of his assets. It's crazy. Uh, it is not. <laughs> in a great way. I mean, I, I'm having trouble visualizing it. I'm back in Pac-Man and River Raid and you know, Galaga yeah. and things like that. I'm saying, where, you know, why, why would you rent that? But if you take it further and for people who are really invested in it and have built their followings participating in these situations, if you have, in a sense, digital real estate or can buy upgrades to the different things that are that you are about, that is actual value for a lot of people. It is. And, you know, one of the things that I think is really interesting is that you guys like you and I have been in our professions for, for a while now. And so for us, these digital assets are truly nascent. And so we're kind of having to learn to see our world through the lens of this new asset class. For a lot of clients in the crypto space, they've been heavily involved in crypto. It's all they've eat, drunk and slept crypto all these years. They're crypto natives, and we're trying to translate our analog world to their digital wealth. This kind of gets to one of the other questions that you raised dealing with the next generation on these assets. And the client who's got the NFTs, although he's my age, I mean, this guy's pushing 50, he's a massive gamer, and his kids are massive gamers. So his kids are growing up in a gaming environment. His kids are growing up in an NFT world. So for a lot of the next generation, they will already be crypto native. It's like my kids, they have no idea what life before the internet was. They've always had a smartphone that was connected to the internet and had more computing power than the Apollo 13 capsule. I remember before dial-up was a thing. 
I tell people all the time that I was probably the last person to graduate from college without an email address. And, you know, younger kids think I came out of the cave like Obi-Wan or something like that. And no, I adapted quickly, but that's the challenge too with advisors is you have people like you and me, we're probably have good credit for being early adopters and being curious and understanding things. But there are others who are slower on the uptake and that conversion of the analog world to this new digital environment is a tricky one. It is. It's kind of like trying to explain the value of email to a fax machine company or trying to explain email to the post office you know, back in the early 90s. So we are sitting in an era of transition, I believe. Bitcoin itself is 12 years old. The rest of what currently survives as a crypto asset space is newer than that. So to your point, we are early adopters. These are very early days. And we see this battle waging in Washington right now, where we've got the Senate, we got the House, we have the SEC, we have the Treasury trying to get their arms around and find out how to regulate this asset class that is so novel. And so the temptation, whether it's in professionals like the fiduciary space or the legal space or the accounting space or regulators and legislators, the temptation is to take this asset class and find a way to mash it into the mold that we've built together over the last 50 plus years, arguably over the last centuries. So we're trying to apply yesterday's thinking to tomorrow's asset class and wondering why there's a disconnect. And people like you and people like me and people like our peers who are navigating this space between the analog and digital are trying to figure out how to marry these two worlds. So as we start to think about winding down here, back in last October when we first spoke, sort of looked through our notes and low interest rates, high exemptions, those are still somewhat in place right now, but they look like they're going to change. Interest rates, maybe not. I've been wrong about interest rates for probably nine consecutive years now. So <laughs> my prediction on the direction of them should always be discounted. But what are you telling clients? I mean, this is still, in my opinion, the most robust, best estate planning environment I've ever seen. And for an asset class that has gone up to $60,000 per Bitcoin and similar trajectories for other coins, and now has come back at a lower valuation, if not now, when? Yeah. I think that's a really fair point. My conversations with clients, I try not to scare with tax. I mean, tax is scary enough. I tell people, and this is so my prediction for whatever this is worth, is I don't think that we're going to see changes to the transfer tax exemptions. I think the gift and estate and GST exemptions are too politically charged, especially on a 50-50 split Senate. There are a lot of people with conventional wealth, small businesses and farmers who could be hurt by a change in the gift and estate tax exemptions and rates. And that would carry forward a lot of exposure for, for most of Congress. And I tell clients from a political perspective, the whole estate tax problem solves itself at the end of 2025, the estate tax exemptions that went up with the 2017 tax act, expire at the end of 2025 and the exemption comes all the way it gets cut in half from 11.7 million dollars today 
it'll get cut back to five million bucks plus inflation indexing. Without having to do anything. You don't have to vote. There's no exposure politically for anybody who has to make that decision in Congress. And Yeah, and you can easily blame the other party for letting it happen. So it's like, why would you poke that bear? Where I do believe we will see changes will be both in capital gains tax rates, corporate income tax rates, and the capital gains tax rates will certainly impact anybody who's got crypto. Long-term rates will go up. Short-term rates potentially could go up. But even beyond that, there are strategies that are becoming endangered species. For example, grantor retained annuity trusts. I kind of alluded to those earlier. Those have been in the crosshairs since the first Obama administration. The concerns around how effective grats are in transferring wealth from one generation to the next, all that has done is become more pronounced as wealth continues to build. So I'm concerned that we might lose the efficacy of grantor retained annuity trusts. We may see long minimum terms, and we might see a 25% minimum remainder value, which could dramatically impact, if not completely cripple, GRATs. Same thing with sales to irrevocable grantor trusts, sometimes referred to as defective grantor trusts. There's a lot of talk around taking away closely held business discounting controls for family-controlled entities. So one of the strategies that's been in play for a very long time in the estate planning world is to create a highly restrictive family limited partnership or limited liability company, put assets inside that structure, and then because of the restrictions inside that structure, the value of 1% of the entity is less than the value of 1% of the underlying assets, getting discounts for lack of marketability, lack of control, and things like that. The IRS has never liked that. And they have routinely lost in court cases about that. And so a big part of what's coming through in Democrat proposed legislation would be to take away strategies like that. So what we're telling clients is don't focus primarily on the estate tax exemption changing in 2022, but you could very well be finding yourself with fewer tools at your disposal. And I guess kind of on top of all of that are really carefully nuanced rules around transfers from trusts becoming capital gains recognition events in a way that never has been before. So it's really going to make estate planning a lot more complicated if, if really any of these significant tax policies come through. So we tell clients, look, I mean, our clients are all well north of federal estate tax exemption levels. They already have 50 million, 100 million, several hundred million dollar estates. And so my point to them is you already have a significant estate tax problem, even if nothing else changes. You already have a significant capital gains tax problem, even if nothing changes. That's likely going to get worse in one way or another. And some of the reliable tools that we have at our disposal may no longer work as early as January of 2022. We don't know. We can't predict. But we watch the news like everybody else does. And so I still think, to your point about interest rates, I think it's still grat season. I think it's still clat season, charitable lead annuity trust. And you know some clients are doing other philanthropic planning. So a lot of what we try to do is help clients think through what it is that they really want to accomplish at a family wealth level. Part of it's going to be tax-driven. Part of it's going to be maximizing inheritances 
But another big part of that is going to be about preparing the next generation for what this wealth can mean in the future. How do we preserve privacy today? How do we carry that privacy plus additional asset protection forward into the future? And how do we set up a family governance framework so that the children and someday grandchildren can begin to share in the decision-making processes to understand not just this nascent asset class of crypto that has built a family's wealth, but then how do you use that wealth to enhance your lives and make the world a better place through your plan? Well said, Matthew. Thank you again for being on. For our listeners, how do they find you? Probably the best way to connect with me would be through our website, which is www.evergreenlegacyplanning.com. You can also find me on LinkedIn just under my name, Matt McClintock, just cross-reference me against Fraser Rice. He and I are connected on LinkedIn. Certainly find me there. I would ask that if people connect with me through LinkedIn, reference Fraser and this podcast because I get an awful lot of inquiries that I don't know where they're coming from. And so I often ignore those, but I'm happy to connect to somebody who has a connection with somebody that I know. And with that, before you go, any last bits of advice for people who are interested in getting into the crypto space that are really at ground zero? Great question. Well, I can tell you that there are more resources now than there were in 2017 when I started digging through this stuff. But there's also an awful lot more noise in the space. There is a good series of books just kind of going off of the top of my head. One of the more thoughtful books I read on this was called The Bitcoin Standard by Safiyadeen Amous, certainly available on Amazon. There's another really good guide called Crypto Asset Succession Planning or Crypto Asset Inheritance Planning. I can't remember the title exactly, but by a woman named Pamela Morgan, another really good book. I would encourage people to watch pretty much any video on YouTube that Andreas Antonopoulos has done. And I've recently become a fan of the What Bitcoin Did podcast by Peter McCormack. I think that's a really approachable and broad view of Bitcoin specifically, but gets into some other crypto stuff. Like a lot of the crypto space, Peter sometimes uses some spicy language. So just folks should be forewarned of that. But it's NSFW, great right? Content. That's right. That's right. That's right. Don't listen to it with the kids around. Terrific. Matthew, thank you for being on. It's been an honor, Frazier. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Wealth Actually.